Under the Cortex is supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. Do researchers tend to engage in research on topics that are personally relevant for them? For example, might someone with depression tend to study it? If so, do they disclose their personal interests? And how is this type of self-relevant research, or me-search, seen by the academic and scientific communities? This is Under the Cortex. I am Ludmila Nunes with the Association for Psychological Science. To speak about a study that analyzed how prevalent me-search is in psychological science in the United States and the attitudes toward this type of research, I have with me Andrew Devendorf from University of South Florida, co-author of a recent article published in Clinical Psychological Science. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to Under the Cortex. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I've been following your research, not just on me-search, but on psychopathology and the outcomes of treatment. But today I want to focus on this article on me-search. Would you like to share with us the main takeaway from this work? Yeah. So in our study, we examined the construct of self-relevant research, also more popularly known as me-search. One reason why we use the term self-relevant research is because it comes off as a more neutral term, whereas uh, in conversations with people I've had, me-search tends to be used a little bit more pejoratively, like the research is all about the researcher, it can be selfish or more biased. And so self-relevant research is the pursuit of research by researchers with a lived experience with or close connection to the research topic. And in clinical psychology, many of our fields largest advancements have been made by people using their lived experiences as a strength. So one famous example is Marsha Linehan, who has talked openly about her experiences with suicidality, self-harm, emotion dysregulation, and she's used her own mental health experiences to actually help with the development of dialectical behavior therapy, which is now a widely used and effective treatment for people with borderline personality disorder. And so aside from some select famous psychologists speaking openly about how their work connects to their own personal experiences, strangely, you don't really hear many others talk about their lived experiences in connection to the research. And so I just think that's a little bit strange, given that we're in such a clinical and applied field where I personally know a lot of people who go into this field with their own connections. And so in our study, we asked three questions. The first was, how common is self-relevant research in clinical counseling school psychology. The second is, what are the perceptions of self-relevant research among psychologists? Is it viewed more negatively, like maybe more biased, or is it viewed more positively as a strength? And lastly, do perceptions about self-relevant research depend on the specific research topic at hand? For example, are researchers who have a history with mental illness topics like depression, suicide, or schizophrenia, are they viewed more negatively than researchers with lived experience of cancer and who study cancer? And so that's what our study set out to discover. And what did you find? Yeah, so what we did was we surveyed um, a representative sample of faculty and graduate students in clinical counseling and school psychology. And we surveyed approximately 1,700 participants 
who came from APA and CPA accredited programs. Those are the accrediting bodies for those clinical oriented programs. And we administered a survey and the survey asked a few questions like providing a definition of self-relevant research and asking people, have you ever conducted this type of research? Uh, do you currently conduct it? Have you conducted it in the past or have you never done it? And that gave us an assessment of how common this type of research is. To assess attitudes, what we did is we actually constructed these vignettes. So basically it gave a brief summary of a researcher who maybe they have uh, depression and they are interested in studying depression or a researcher who's had a history of cancer and they study cancer. And we also had a condition with somebody who doesn't have a personal connection to the research. And we asked respondents to read those brief summaries, everybody was assigned to one, and then report on their attitudes about that researcher. So we developed three different scales. The first skill assesses more negative attitudes people might have. So for example, to what extent do you view this researcher as more biased, selfish, or irresponsible? And we viewed that as more stigmatizing attitudes. Also, to what extent do you view this researcher as having more insight or motivation in their work, some more strengths-based attitudes? And lastly, to what extent do you think it's okay for a researcher to talk about why they're pursuing the research topic across different contexts, like a personal statement for graduate school, a job talk, or publicly on a platform like a podcast like this one. Mm -hmm. And this study was conducted in the United States. So there's a caveat here. It might be different in other countries. So regarding prevalence, in the United States, what did you find about prevalence of this self-relevant research? Yes. So we found that more than half of clinical psychologists and graduate students have conducted this type of self-relevant research. So the exact number is 55% of our respondents had previously or currently conduct self-relevant research. And we actually saw that graduate students were more likely to report currently conducting doing self-relevant research. Perhaps more interestingly, and more for applied discussions about why this work is important, we found people from historically marginalized backgrounds were more likely to conduct self-relevant research. So this includes people from sexual orientation minority backgrounds, so people who are lesbian, gay, or bisexual, people who are non-white are more likely to do self-relevant research, and people who have reported a history of mental health difficulties are more likely to do self-relevant research. And so when we consider self-relevant research in that context, and that many of these researchers might use their identities and be inspired to use their experiences, it kind of raises the question of why we might be more likely to view those people as more biased or negatively for doing that self-relevant research. Mm -hmm. And this takes us to your second research question. How is this type of research seen by others? Yes. And so after giving these, the participants these vignettes and asking them to respond, we found that uh, respondents who were clinical counseling and school psychologists they were more likely to stigmatize a self-relevant researcher who studies mental illness topics, such as depression or suicide or schizophrenia. They were more likely to stigmatize those researchers compared to a researcher who studies physical illness topics like cancer. And so that kind of gives an indication that there's some paradoxical levels of stigma toward mental illness 
or the pursuit of that self-relevant research in clinical psychology. And in our discussion, we kind of tackle why that's relevant and can have uh, negative repercussions for our field. Mm -hmm. I, I want to know more about those repercussions and those implications. Uh, but I'm also interested, uh, you mentioned that you had different scales to measure attitudes towards this type of research. And so you found that negative attitudes were more prevalent for self-relevant research and researchers. Uh, but did you find any differences regarding the positive attitudes? Did you find any differences? Yes. So we basically segmented our analyses by looking at if you have done self-relevant research before, how do you perceive somebody who does self-relevant research? And so we actually found an interaction effect in the sense that people who have done self-relevant research were actually more likely to view the pursuit of self-relevant research more positively and view those researchers as having maybe more insight, motivation, um, passion compared to non-self-relevant researchers. On the flip side, people who have not done self-relevant research, they were more likely to stigmatize that hypothetical self-relevant researcher. So they were more likely to view those people as biased, irresponsible, um, selfish. It's more likely that uh, they're not okay with them talking openly about their experiences. Um, however, regardless of whether or not somebody has conducted self-relevant research, we found that our full sample of clinical and counseling and school graduate students and faculty, they viewed people who do self-relevant research on mental illness topics more negatively compared to physical illness topics, whereas they also viewed uh, people who do self-relevant research on topics like cancer more positively on that strengths-based item scale. So if you have a self-relevant researcher on cancer, our sample was more likely to view those people more positively and they were more likely to approve of those researchers talking openly about how their research connects to their personal experiences. Uh, so you mentioned talking openly about doing this type of research. And what I'm curious about is whether people disclose that they're doing this type of research. And if you have any information about the implications of disclosure, how people feel about disclosing this. Definitely. So in our study, we found that there are actually mixed attitudes about self-relevant research in our field. And so there are risks and rewards to disclosing self-relevant research. For example, professionally, if you're applying to graduate school, you might be asked to write a personal statement to discuss how you became interested in a research topic. Or for faculty positions or for grants, there are these diversity statements in psychology now, which ask people to discuss how uh, they can contribute to diversity um, in the field. And so if there are these mixed attitudes out there, um, it can, there can be real professional repercussions if somebody discloses on one of those applications and it's viewed negatively. Similarly, if somebody doesn't disclose and somebody else discloses and the committee has a positive reaction, maybe it's uh, more likely that that person gets it. And so there's not really clear guidance and it puts people who do self-relevant research in this precarious, ambiguous situation. And so uh, every year when, you know, hundreds of people per graduate program apply, like I think faculty reckon with these questions behind the scenes of how do you deal with this and how do you vet out applicants and whether or not it's professional or not. I think one recommendation I always have is 
when you're asking people to write a personal statement, kind of clarify what you're looking for in that statement. Um, maybe not even using the word personal in the statement. Say it's like a professional statement because when you use the word personal, of course, a lot of us think of a more personal story. So there are definitely concrete steps and I don't have all the answers. Um, I still just think we're at the step of like people openly acknowledging that this topic is important and has relevance for who we're recruiting and keeping in our field. And I just hope that there's more research and open discussion about how to kind of reconcile that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense if we think about the type of research we all do that we have to feel some personal motivation to pursue it because that's part of uh, what creates curiosity about a topic. Exactly. And um, I like how you said that because there are some experiences that are so rare that you don't have a lot of people studying those topics because they don't have those personal connections. Um, I mentioned Marsha Linehan as a key example You know, Marsha Linehan in her book, Building a Life Worth Living, talks about how nobody in research really knew how to deal with the mental health difficulties that she was experiencing. You know, the urge to attempt suicide or to self-harm or the emotional dysregulation and the patterns of those things. And it was because she had those personal experiences that she became more invested to help others get out of that very same situation. And she could provide those very same insights. I want to go into one other example of another person I'm a fan of. I don't believe she's a clinical psychologist, but Nev Jones studies schizophrenia. And she's talked about how she will get frustrated when she sits in rooms with people talking about what a symptom of psychosis or hallucination looks like. And they don't have those personal experiences to kind of inform their definitions of them or people incorporating those people with lived experience. And so we can learn a lot by Uh, cultivating acceptance around researchers with lived experience in our field to tackle those questions that maybe aren't as um, popular or people just aren't able to identify with in the first place. Mm -hmm. And specifically about mental health problems, uh, I would like to tie these with other of your research in which you show that optimal well-being and optimal functioning is possible after psychopathology. So to show that people can be perfectly functional after a diagnosis of a mental health issue. Definitely. So I'm really happy that you kind of connected this thread in my work because my broader work seeks to reduce stigma towards mental health difficulties. And one way we can do that is combating messages or negative stereotypes. And so there are these stereotypes out there that if you have a mental illness like depression, anxiety, or even a personality disorder, you're not able to function or succeed either in academia. But in this other line of research that you bring up, we actually find that there's a substantial segment of people who have a history of a mental health problem like depression, anxiety, um, or substance use disorder, and they can go on not just to recover from that mental health difficulty, but exhibit really high levels of thriving. So the presence of a mental health issue uh, should not be a stigmatizing factor for judging any researcher, obviously. I think it's, it's a dialectic in the sense that two things can be true. I think mental illness can be impairing and it is impairing. That's how we define it. And that's why people suffer and they seek help for it. And also, just because somebody has that experience doesn't mean that they can't function professionally or, or they can't get the help to eventually be able to function. 
But when we stigmatize mental illness, especially in academia, then people don't talk about mental illness. Then they can't seek help for it. And then they can't thrive in the long term. And so one reason why I'm really passionate about this work is because I'm trying to ignite these conversations that nobody is having. And I think it's really hurting the well-being of our field and who's able to sustain and succeed in our field that's very competitive. It's associated with high levels of burnout. And so I think silence begets silence, which begets stigma. And I think if we just have more open conversations, we can reduce the stigma and we can help people function and hopefully flourish long term. Yeah, I completely agree. So you basically summarized uh, the practical implications of this research that you're conducting and its importance for the entire field. I just hope people that if they have a negative association with MeSearch, I just ask them to reflect on um, that bias and to ask themselves, what is the implication of having this bias and viewing these researchers so negatively? And I want people to imagine what clinical psychology would look like if we did stigmatize researchers with lived experience. We wouldn't have people like Marsha Linehan developing DBT, um, Thomas Joyner, a famous uh, renowned suicide prevention researcher. He's talked openly about losing his dad to suicide. Or Stephen Hinshaw has talked about how his own mental health experiences with stigma motivated him to want to study stigma. And so if we're stigmatizing people with mental health difficulties or who do self-relevant research, we are excluding very important voices who offer a lot of unique perspectives in our field. I want to caveat that by saying I'm not saying that we need to require people to have a lived experience. I'm just saying right now the pendulum seems to be on the side of stigmatizing this type of experience. And I think there just needs to be more balance so that we get that true diversity of people with lived experiences and people without lived experiences tackling these important phenomena. This is Ludmila Nunes with APS, and I've been speaking to Andrew Devendorf from the University of South Florida. Andrew, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. If you want to know more about this research, visit psychologicalscience.org. It's never been a more exciting time to join APS. APS membership gives you free access to a growing number of webinars and virtual events to help you advance your career, exclusive opportunities to contribute and share your science, reduced registration rates for two scientific conferences, and so much more. Ready to join a community dedicated to advancing scientific psychology? Visit member.psychologicalscience.org to learn more. At Macmillan Learning Psychology, content matters. And these days, digital content matters more than ever. Macmillan Learning's Achieve elevates interactive teaching and learning with an extraordinary range of online course content in a powerful, yet easy to use platform. Interactive eBooks, innovative assessments, engaging videos and activities, helpful instructor resources. Achieve brings it all together. It makes it easy for you to find what you need and use what you want. See for yourself. Go to macmillanlearning.com slash under the cortex for an introductory tour today. Macmillan's Achieve for Psychology, engaging every student, supporting every instructor, setting the new standard for teaching and learning.